0: All right, good morning, everybody. I hope your Advent season is off to a good start. Sarah and I, we were, we're on top of things this year. We got our tree up uh, just a couple days after Thanksgiving. About two days after Thanksgiving, I went to the tree farm. And um, I take very seriously the task of finding the perfect tree. Right? It's got to be just the right height, just the right shape the right kind, you know, because some kinds they lose their needles earlier than other ones. And it took a little while, but I found what I thought was the perfect tree. And I got it home and in water within one hour after it was cut, because uh, I wanted to make sure that it stays as alive and healthy as long as possible. And, uh, and then last Sunday, Sarah and I put up all the decorations, the lights, the garlands, uh, the ornaments, got it all perfectly, perfectly set up. And uh, we both agreed, which we don't always, this is a very nice tree. Um, and every morning this, this week I would get up and the first thing i do is i go and turn on the lights on the tree and I'd put water in there, because I'm a little OCD about that, make sure it's full. And just sit there and just think, this is a really nice tree. Um, and then on Thursday night, we had some people from church come over. And, and they came into the living room and they said, that is a really nice tree. And uh, as we were sitting in the living room, without any warning, that very nice tree toppled over and landed on the piano. LAUGHTER <laughs> Which it made this appropriately dissonant sound, you know, to match my horror as it slammed into it. So uh, it actually took several attempts and days to get it back in place, and uh, Sarah resorted to tying, you know, some some thread to the tree and the curtain rod, and uh, that is the current solution. And I really hope that it stays that way. It seems stable and upright, so. Hopefully, your transition to the holiday season has gone a little smoother than ours. Um, But anyway, as Keith said, we're starting a new series today, The Sounding Joy Part Two. Part two because two years ago we did uh, a series where we looked at some of the songs that we tend to hear this time of year and reflected on them and their significance. And of course, I'm not talking about songs like jingle bells, I'm talking about the songs that uh, in some way reflect the same kind of truths that we uh, see in Scripture. And uh, last time we did this, we did Hark the Herald Angels Sing, What Child Is This?, The Little Drummer Boy, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and O Holy Night. And this week, I kept asking myself, can I really find four more songs that fit the bill, that can inspire whole sermons? And I think the answer is yes. I'm sure of at least three. (laughs) So hopefully we'll be able to find a fourth one as well. but the song that we're going to do today is the one that we just sang, uh, called Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus. And uh, this is not one that is as commonly known in the secular world. Chances are, if you, if you grew up in the church, you probably heard this song around Christmas time. Uh, and even if you didn't grow up in the church, there's a good, good chance that you've got a Christmas album or two that has this song on it, at least played instrumentally. And uh, I think it's a shame that it's not more well-known. I, I think it you know, should have been as big as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, but for whatever reason, maybe because it wasn't on Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, it, it didn't end up catching on and being as, as well-known. But I think the melody sounds Christmassy, and the lyrics beautifully express the significance of Jesus' birth. Just a little bit of background uh, about the song. It was written... In 1744, the lyrics were written in 1744 by Charles Wesley. And he wrote them around this time of year because he he wanted something to get people's focus in the right place around around Advent season. And uh, originally it was paired with a different melody than the one we just sang. The melody that we just sang was actually written 100 years later, in 1844, uh, by a Welsh musician named Roland Pritchard. And uh, the two have been combined uh, since around that time. Um, There's a lot of recordings of this song out there, if you're looking for them. A couple of the ones that I found, uh, there's a version by Chris Tomlin on his Christmas album, Glory in the Highest, from 2009. There's one by Sarah Groves from an album she put out two years ago called Joy of Every Longing Heart, which that line comes from the song. And uh, the one that I found that I liked the most was this one by somebody I'd never heard of before, Red Mountain Church, from uh, 2008 album Silent Night. And uh, the original version actually only had the first and last verses that we just sang. It's just two stanzas. So that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. The the version with four stanzas, which is also the one that Red Mountain Church uses, uh, those stanzas were added later, actually in the 1970s. So they're, very, they're r- relatively new, uh, but I think they sound just like something Charles Wesley would have written. So um, I think they're a, they're a welcome addition. But I definitely highly recommend that Red Mountain Church one. You can go and listen to it on Spotify if you want. So I'm going to read the two stanzas of the song. I know we just sang it, but sometimes when you just hear it read, you process it a little bit differently. So let's take this in right now. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Now, we might ask, when we sing that opening line, Come thou long-expected Jesus, what's the perspective that we're supposed to be singing that from? Are we singing from the perspective of the Israelites before Jesus' birth, calling for the long-expected Messiah to finally be born? Or are we singing from the perspective of today, Christians in the church today, inviting Jesus to return? Because he said he was going to come back, right? So, uh, which is it? Well, on the one hand, you could say, well, hey, this song refers to Jesus' birth four times in only two stanzas. So it seems like it's all about the first coming. But on the other hand, it speaks about Jesus' birth as if it is something that has already happened. right? So my answer to the question is, it's both. Yes. When we sing this, we should think about those people in the Old Testament who were waiting for Jesus to come and the longing that they had for the Messiah to arrive. But at the same time, as we sing this, we should recognize that we, like them, are in a similar position, where we also are waiting for Jesus to return and finish the work that he started. Waiting is a big part of our faith, if you haven't noticed that. And uh, what what you might not realize is that The people that were waiting for Jesus, the first time, were waiting a lot longer than we've waited now. You know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth, so we can legitimately say, come thou long-expected Jesus. He's been expected for a long time. But, what we might miss, or or not realize, is that the people who were waiting prior to Jesus' first coming waited a lot longer. Now, you might ask, well, how long did they wait? And uh, it would be pretty hard to put an exact number on that. But one thing we do know is that they waited uh, long enough that, that the expectation is actually set in the first book of the Bible. So the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis has 50 chapters in it but the expectation for Jesus is set as early as the third chapter. The third chapter, verses 14 through 15. And what I want to do this morning, my main goal here, is to look at that passage, and I want us to recognize, one, the expectation that it sets, all the way at the beginning of the Bible, and two, how perfectly Jesus fulfills it. Um, Generally speaking, A sermon is supposed to inspire people to do something or or act in some way. But this sermon isn't really going to be about that. The the point of this sermon this morning is just for us to recognize um, how incredible the story of the Bible is and how well it fits together, even though it takes place over thousands and thousands of years. And this passage is a great one to look at if we're looking for evidence of that. Um, So, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, I encourage you to open up to the first pages of the Bible, Book of Genesis. And before we look at this specific passage, chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, I need to set the stage a little bit for what comes before that. So in Genesis 1, chapter 1, we are given a poetic description of God creating the world, shaping the world, molding the world into what we have today. And then in Genesis 2, we're introduced to Adam and Eve, uh, who I, I want to encourage you to think of them as representatives of humanity. And Adam and Eve are placed in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, they are given good work to do, And they're given good things to enjoy. In fact, we might say that they are given a multitude of good options. They're told, you can eat from any tree in the garden, except they have one prohibition that they're given. God says, don't eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden. If you eat from that tree, you will die. And then in Genesis chapter 3, a serpent comes along and persuades Eve to eat from that tree. Now, I don't know how familiar this story is to you. Chances are, if, you, uh, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard it before. But if you haven't been, there's a chance that, uh, or maybe even if you have been, there's a chance that you're hearing what I'm saying right now, and you're thinking, are you being serious right now? The Garden of Eden? A talking snake? Forbidden fruit? Am I really supposed to, to believe all this? Isn't, isn't this all at odds with, with science? If that's what you're thinking, this is what I want to say to you. Okay. Some people interpret this story very, very literally, every detail of it. Some people interpret it more allegorically. Some people fall somewhere in between. Those two poles? So there's a lot of ways that people understand this story. What I want to encourage you to do is to shelve all those questions about how literal it is and that sort of thing. And just, instead of focusing on those questions, ask yourself two different kinds of questions as you read the story. One, what is this story saying about who God is? And two, what is this story saying about people? In the situation that we are in. Because I think that if you read and study this story with those two questions in mind, you will find that what it says is deeply and profoundly true. Whether it's literal or not, it is deeply and profoundly true. And then, you know, once you realize that and experience that, then you can start to deal with, wrestle with those kinds of questions uh, that I mentioned earlier. But don't let those questions about historicity and that sort of thing, don't let that distract you from the power that is inherent in this story and what it reveals about God and about humanity. Okay. So let's, uh, let's look at what happens here. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent... Was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We should hear the serpent mocking God there. Did God really say that God, the nerve of that guy? Verse 2 The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from any tree. In the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, how is the serpent trying to deceive Eve here? What's he doing? What he's doing is he's trying to get Eve to think that God doesn't really have her best interest in mind. He's trying to get her to think that God is not really good, that God doesn't really love her, that God is withholding something from her, that God is selfish. Right? That's, the, that's what he's really trying to do there, is to deceive her in that way. He says, God doesn't want you to be like him. That's why he doesn't want you to eat from the tree. Which is a weird thing for the serpent to accuse God of because we were just told earlier in this account that God created Adam and Eve in his image, which means he created them to be like him. right? And yet the serpent is saying, oh, God doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to keep that from you. And so he deceives the woman. So Eve goes with this back to the forbidden tree and looks at it with this seed of doubt planted in her mind about the love of God and the goodness of God. She looks at the tree, and then this is what happens. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So after coming to doubt the goodness of God, Eve looks at this tree, and she thinks, hey, the fruit looks good. I'd like to try it. I don't trust God anymore to have my best interests at heart, so I'm going to determine for myself what my best interests are. And so she takes and eats from the tree. And, of course, then she gives some to her husband, Adam. And I really want us to notice that it says that he was with her. (laughs) Which means, you know, he was not ignorant of what was going on. Okay? He knew where that fruit came from. He knew he wasn't supposed to eat from it. And yet he ate it anyway. And I want us to pay close attention to that. Because sometimes I hear people say, oh, this story was designed to make women look bad. At least the woman needed to be deceived, right? <laughs> Adam was just like, oh, whatever, okay, and he eats it, right? So, I mean, both the man and the woman come out looking bad here. If we really want to have a debate, who, who comes out looking worse? I mean, I would say Adam looks a little worse myself. but <clears throat> So, remember the reason that we turn to this story. Because this is the first place in the Bible where the expectation for Jesus is set. So where does that happen? So when God responds to this situation, this rebellion of the man and the woman, he says something to the serpent. And that brings us to Genesis 3, 14 through 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. All right, what is that all about? That's very cryptic and weird, isn't it? This is where the expectation is being set. What kind of expectation is being set here? Well, let's look at it more closely. Okay, we'll, we'll take it piece by piece. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So we might read that and think Does this mean that snakes originally had legs? And then one snake led this woman astray, and then all snakes get punished by not having legs? Uh, it probably doesn't surprise you that I don't think that makes much sense. Uh, for one thing, it doesn't make any sense to talk about a snake that has legs. That's like talking about a hat that goes on your foot. It doesn't make sense. What we need to recognize is that those phrases, crawl on your belly and eat dust, were figures of speech that meant you're going to be humiliated and you're going to be defeated. Kind of like when we say someone bit the dust. So what I would say is is the serpent in the story represents the devil, or Satan. And the serpent is a great thing to represent the devil because it crawls on its belly and it eats dust, because the devil is going to be humiliated and going to be defeated. And then we get some details about how this is going to happen. And again, they're very cryptic, they're very strange. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Enmity isn't a word that we hear very much these days, but it basically means opposition or hostility, that there's going to be a striving uh, between the woman and the serpent, between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. So so that leads to the question, well, what is the offspring of of the serpent? What's that talking about? Uh, Well, I could try to go into the details of making the case for why I think this, but hopefully you can just take me at my word um, that I believe the offspring of the serpent refers to everyone who chooses to live like the serpent. It's not talking about genetics. It's talking about an attitude, a disposition. Everyone who is like the serpent mocks God, uh, doubts the goodness of God, tries to deceive others into doubting the goodness of God. Those who, who lie and cheat and steal. right, And that defines their identity. That's the offspring of the serpent. So who's the offspring of the woman? Or who or what is the offspring of the woman? Well, interestingly, most translations refer to the offspring of the woman in the singular You might have noticed, it said, he will crush your head. He will crush your head. And so what this seems to be saying is that at some point, a descendant will come, a special descendant, born of a woman, who will defeat and humiliate the devil. And I want us to notice something. Even though there is hostility between this offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, does the offspring of the woman attack the offspring of the serpent? No. The offspring of the woman attacks the serpent. He will crush the serpent's head, right? Not the offspring of the serpent. And that reminds me of a verse in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, which says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, our struggle is not against human beings. That's not who our real enemy is, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Who is the real enemy? You know, Jesus makes this more clear when he comes, we're not supposed to think of our real enemy as being other people. Okay. Our enemy is the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, the serpents. So, this is a promise that one day a descendant will come who will destroy the serpent. And then we're told a little bit more. We're told that when this descendant comes and crushes the serpent's head, that the serpent will strike his heel. Now, what is that about? What does that mean? Well, think about the image that it's describing. Imagine that you look down, and there is a venomous snake at your feet, and it's rearing up to strike. You could try to run away, but honestly, I mean, it's going to strike really fast, right? So you're probably not going to be able to get away. So the response that you'd probably do is just you'd immediately try to bring your foot down on this thing, right? And what this is saying is that when the offspring of the woman goes to crush the serpent, the serpent is going to strike him. He's going to sink his venomous fangs into his heel. And one way of thinking about this is when the descendant of the woman destroys the devil, it's going to hurt the offspring of the woman. Okay, It's going to be painful. One other thing I want us to notice. The phrase offspring of the woman is very interesting. Uh, Literally, it means the seed of the woman. And that's interesting because throughout the Bible, usually, children are thought of as the seed of their father, not as the seed of their mother. Um, you know, Abraham's descendants are called Abraham's seed. They're not called Sarah's seed. David's descendants are called David's seed, not you know, Bathsheba's seed or something like that. So there's, there's a suggestion here that this special descendant that's going to come and crush the devil is going to be descended in a u- unique way. Right? Maybe in a way where he doesn't have the seed of the father, a seed of an earthly father at all. Maybe. So this expectation was set, and I will summarize it here. The one who leads humanity astray, the serpent, will be humiliated and defeated. There will be hostility and opposition between him and humanity, and between those who follow the serpent and those who do not. But one day, a descendant will come, a descendant who is the seed of a woman, and he will destroy the one who leads humanity astray. But in the process, it's going to hurt. You may have noticed that there's a lot of genealogies in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? You know, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, is the father of so-and-so, and on and on. And a lot of the time we see those, we're like, why? What? what is this here for? Well, when you think of those genealogies in light of this promise, they, they take on more significance, right? Because every person that's born, there's this Tension. There's this question, is this person going to be the seed of the woman? Is this person going to be the one who crushes the serpent? The one who isn't deceived? The one who doesn't taste the forbidden fruit? Is this going to be the one? And over and over again, throughout the story of the Bible, the answer is nope, nope, nope. Every time we start to have hope that this is going to be the person who does things right, there's something wrong with them. There's no person in the Bible besides Jesus that you can look at and they just... They're completely clean, right? So over and over again, people are born, descendants are born, and over and over again, they are not the promised offspring of the woman. But then, one day, on the day we now celebrate on Christmas, a special descendant is born, Jesus He's born to a humble family on a night when there's no room in the inn. So he's placed in a feeding trough for animals, a manger. And that descendant, according to his mother and his adoptive father, is truly a seed of the woman. There's no seed of a father involved. It's a virgin birth. And then that descendant grows up, and he begins to teach and minister and heal people and to cast out demons The servants of the serpent and the people who follow in the way of the serpent don't like him. Some of them are religious leaders. In fact, at one point, Jesus says to them, you are of your father, the devil. Basically saying, you guys are like the offspring of the serpent. And then the serpent's hostility towards Jesus, it's so intense that he he then seeks to kill Jesus. Right? And so he leads people in positions of power to kill him. He leads the religious leaders. He, he, he plays up their pride and their envy so that they, they make false accusations against him. And he, he, he plays on Judas' greed so that Judas betrays Jesus and hands him over to those authorities. And he plays on the... Um, the Roman Empire, by leading them to consent to kill Jesus because they're more interested in stability than in justice. And so Jesus is crucified. The serpent has struck the heel of the offspring of the woman. He sunk his fangs into him and released his poison. But the serpent has miscalculated Because as he kills Jesus, he's actually being crushed. Because Jesus' death is a perfect, sinless sacrifice. And because of that sacrifice, the serpent is defeated. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that crazy? You see how perfectly Jesus fulfills this weird, cryptic, strange promise from thousands of years before his birth, third chapter of the Bible, right at the very beginning. So an expectation was set, thousands of years passed, and finally on the day that Christmas commemorates, the long-expected Jesus arrived. As we sang in the song, the hope of all the earth, the desire of every nation, the joy of every longing heart. And now, once again, we're waiting. The serpent's head has been crushed. It was crushed when Jesus died on the cross. We might say the serpent is mortally wounded, but he's not quite dead yet. He's in the death throes. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, says that the devil knows that his time is short. And so what is he doing as he's in the death throes? What is he trying to do? Well, he's trying to do, with the little time that he's got left, the same kind of thing that he did at the very beginning. He's trying to persuade us to think that God's not really good. Trying to persuade us to think that God doesn't really love us. Trying to persuade us to think that if God prohibits anything, that it's because God wants to withhold something from us and keep something from us. And those deceptions, when we buy into them, They cause all kinds of turmoil. They cause turmoil in our individual lives, and they cause turmoil that ripples throughout society. And the way to not fall for that deception is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Do you want assurance that God is really good, that he really wants what's best for you? Well, Jesus is the proof, right? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus shows us that God is willing to go from heaven to a manger, to a cross. Why? To rescue us. You're not going to find the serpent doing anything like that. That's extraordinary humility, extraordinary self-giving, extraordinary love. So this Christmas, let's remember that the birth that we celebrate was long expected. A lot of time between Genesis 3.14 and Matthew 2.25. But despite how long it took, Jesus still managed to check every box on that cryptic ancient promise. And that should fill us with hope. It should fill us with hope that the other promises in the Bible, the ones that either have not been fulfilled yet or that we're still waiting to personally experience, that we can count on those promises, that we can trust in them, and so we can sing and pray with confidence. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come and set things right. Come and bring justice and peace. Raise us to thy glorious throne and trust that he will. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning you would fill us with awe um, awe of how you have worked throughout history, how ancient promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. Lord, I, I pray if, if any of this is confusing to any of us, that you would just illuminate it, help us to understand. And Lord, we thank you that, especially at this time of year, we have a reminder that you crushed the head of the serpent, that you have crushed the evil one, and that we can trust that you are good, that you really do want what's best for us. Help us, Lord, to trust. Help us not to be deceived. In Jesus' name, amen.